Catherine of Aragon's mother, Europe's greatest queen. With his vast head and squashed nose, Enrique IV of Castile was said to resemble a lion. No one could think of any such tactful comparison for the peculiar shape of his penis. With his oversized head and narrow base, it was too bottom-heavy to maintain erections. His droop was, however, his half-sister Isabella's opportunity. This was the woman who was to be the mother of Henry VIII's wife, Catherine of Aragon, and the grandmother of Bloody Mary Tudor. You need only look to the story of her life to see why they might be as formidable as they were. I am the historian Leander Delisle, uncovering the Tudors and Stuarts behind the myths. By 1469, when she was 18, Isabella had already proven herself unusually independent-minded and determined. Despite swearing to marry only with the consent of the king, she wed young Ferdinand, heir to the kingdom of Aragon, and so made a political alliance against her brother Enrique's wishes. Enrique duly punished Isabella by demoting her from the succession. When he died in 1474, his will bequeathed his throne to his 12-year-old daughter, Joanna, which was unlucky for Joanna. Isabella was not someone you wanted to make an enemy of. Isabella believed that little Juana was merely the queen's bastard and stated frankly that Enrique was incapable of siring a child. Even when his doctor had succeeded in masturbating him to ejaculation, his sperm had been disappointing. Although it was possible that one of the files used to artificially inseminate his wife had worked, Isabella was certain it had not. Enrique was buried in Madrid in the rough clothes he liked to wear. Isabella considered that he had been a gentle soul whose kindness and hatred of conflict had made him a terrible king. She was determined to do better and Juana's supporters were not going to get in the way. Two days later, Isabella launched a coup with a procession through the streets of Segovia, adorned with glittering jewels of gold and precious stones. A sword was carried before her, held by the point, hilt upwards, a symbol of a royal authority to punish by violence. Isabella was doing what no woman had ever done, claiming absolute authority as a reigning queen and displaying publicly the masculine symbols of violent intent. But seizing the throne would prove far better suited to this remarkable woman than doing anything so passive as merely inheriting it. The days of a gentle yet failing monarch were over. Isabella now began her reign as she meant to go on, by justifying her actions as God's will. The Almighty's mysterious plan would encompass a lot of ground in the years to come, both moral and geographical. And it helped explain to this deep conservative why a mere woman, by nature inferior to men, could rule over them. It was a disappointment to Isabella that men did not always live up to their heroic billing. When the commanders fighting her cause against Juana's supporters avoided a major battle, she raged that, even if women lack the discretion for knowledge, the energy for daring, and sometimes the language to speak with, I have found that we do have eyes to see with. With her army, she would have taken on any challenge in the world. In future, she ordered, 
We lose ourselves to fury rather than allow moderation to triumph. You can be sure there was little triumph for moderation thereafter. Isabella and Ferdinand won the war. Juana was given life imprisonment with compulsory prayers in an enclosed convent. And Isabella set about cleansing Castile of the disorders of Enrique's reign. Thieves, rapists and murderers were one target, but so were those considered guilty of sexual immorality. Homosexuals, found guilty of sodomy, were castrated and hanged. A man found lurking beneath the windows of her ladies-in-waiting kept his testicles, but was also hanged. It was Isabella who founded the Spanish Inquisition, along with Ferdinand. Its role was to root out heresy, another source of disorder. The Inquisitors began with a large number of Christian converts from Judaism. Their methods proved both cruel and incompetent. Greed, racism and personal enmities often played a role in denunciations, just as torture led to false confessions and Orthodox Christians gained the stake for imagined heresies. Jews who had not converted remained for a time under royal protection. This was in contrast, in fact, to much of the rest of Europe, including England, from where they had been expelled long before. Eventually, however, Isabella was convinced that to protect her Christian subjects from corruption, the Jews had to convert or leave. Laws were issued to ensure that expulsions would be carried without cruelty. But it gave people a sense of permission to act on their worst instincts. Jews had to sell property at knockdown prices and became easy targets for robbery and even murder. Isabella and Ferdinand had by then completed the reconquest of Moorish Spain. Military victories thrilled Isabella and she had organised military campaigns personally as well as introducing frontline medicine for her troops. She dressed Arab style in silk and brocade to greet the defeated Moorish king after he had left the beauty of the Alhambra for the last time. Legend has it that as he continued on his ride into exile, he looked back at the city his ancestors had ruled for 250 years and paused to weep at a spot that became known as the Pass of the Moor's Sigh. Elsewhere in Europe, Muslims were still conquering Christian land, forcing conversions and making them slaves. By contrast, after Granada's surrender in 1492, Spanish Muslims lived under a Christian crown until the time came when, like the Jews, they also had to convert or leave. The marriage of Isabella's daughter Catherine of Aragon to Henry Tudor's son Arthur was arranged in 1499. Isabella refused, however, to allow the betrothal to go ahead until Henry VII had disposed of the prince he kept in the tower, the last male Plantagenet, Edward Earl of Warwick. The young man had been kept imprisoned since he was 11 years old because he had a far greater claim to the throne of England than Henry did. Isabella and Ferdinand believed he posed too much of a threat to be kept alive. Henry was horrified by what they asked, but in the end he did what was necessary. The prince was executed on trumped-up charges of treason and beheaded in an act of judicial murder that shocked his subjects. Later, it was said that Henry VII's actions in killing the last Plantagenet had cursed the Tudor line. No male Tudor 
born after that act of murder, ever lived to adulthood. But there was only one achievement that provoked in Isabella any uncertainty that her actions had been entirely right, moral and proper. Christopher Columbus's dreams of discovering a new world in the West were, to most sensible people, quite bonkers. Isabella, however, shared the Italian explorer's love of bold action and had moments of romantic folly. She agreed to bankroll an enterprise that would see her heirs rule an empire on which the sun would never set. Columbus's discoveries did not at first produce the gold he had promised. It brought instead brilliant green parrots and slaves with broad faces and beautiful eyes. Isabella had dreamed of souls to convert, but her new subjects were often denied baptism so that their owners could justify their enslavement. Their nations were bled of gold and almost wiped out by disease. Amongst her last wishes were to ask her husband to ensure that in future they were not abused, but treated fairly. She then asked for 20,000 masses to be said for her soul and a further 20,000 for those who had died fighting her wars. Isabella and Ferdinand were the ultimate power couple, dual monarchs of Aragon in his case and Castile in hers. Their relationship was founded on respect as much as love, but she was the more remarkable well-deserving of the claim that she was Europe's first great queen. Meanwhile, on her death, her daughter Catherine was already a widow, and five years later, she would marry Henry VIII. When she had no sons and Henry annulled his marriage to Catherine, he did so with trepidation. He once said that she could lead an army against him like her mother had deployed armies against the Moors in Spain. She never got that opportunity, but despite all the vicissitudes of fortune, her daughter became a ruling queen, just as Isabella had been. Mary Tudor raised an army to win her crown against the men who opposed her in 1553, and she is still remembered for the ruthless actions of her reign, in which she burned more heretics than any contemporary. Mary Tudor even put her grandmother's inquisition into the shade. If you are interested in knowing more, you may enjoy my biography of the Tudor dynasty, Tudor, the family story. You can also contact me via my website, Facebook or Twitter. Oh,